The material shared within this podcast is based on the personal experiences and learnings of the presenter. Coloplast has paid the presenter for sharing this information. Nothing within this podcast is intended to be used as medical advice and or used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Coloplast Professional Bowel and Bladder Matters Podcast, where we explore various important topics related to ostomies and continence. I am your host, Rachel McDonald. I'm a registered nurse and clinical consultant with Coloplast. Today's podcast guest is Denise Nix. Denise is a master's prepared certified woundostomy continence nurse with over 28 years of clinical practice experience. Her current clinical practice is at M Health Fairview in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She also serves as a consultant for the MHA Safe Skin Collaborative involving over 100 Minnesota hospitals. Her experience includes faculty and associate director in wound ostomy continence educational programs authorship, and co-editor of Acute and Chronic Wounds, Current Management Concepts textbook, as well as speaking nationally and internationally. Welcome. This is our part two of our two-part podcast series on catheter-associated urinary tract infections. We will focus on the impact CAUTI has on the patient and in the healthcare environment. Welcome, Denise. Thank you, Rachel. Um, First, let's just dive in and, and talk a little bit about What's been the evolution of treatment for Cotty? Well, when I first started nursing about three decades ago, um, before we knew more about chronic urinary tract infections and antibiotic-resistant organisms, uh, we would treat patients for, they'd go on antibiotics for pretty much any symptom in isolation, whether it was the change in urine, uh, the color, the odor, the consistency, Uh, urethral irritation, fevers. Uh, Antibiotics was our first go-to. Now, with all the resistant organisms, we're looking at really trying to avoid antibiotics if they don't need them. So the differential diagnosis is more precise. Infectious disease doctors, especially in in the hospital setting, are becoming involved to get them on the, if they must be on antibiotics, to get them on the right antibiotics, to be really specific to a certain type of bacteria. So we know more and are not as quick to use antibiotics without a more definitive diagnosis of urinary tract infection. And I guess to, to go from there, uh, we're really focused uh, in healthcare today on the topic of CAUTI. Can you talk a little bit more about the impact CAUTI has on the patient as well as the healthcare system? Well, for the patient, studies show that 40% of hospital-acquired infections are urinary tract infections, and 75% of those are CAUTI related to urinary catheters. I think patients come in the hospital to get better for something that has nothing to do with catheters, and then they could they end up sick from the use of a catheter. So they're not even expecting that. It has never even occurred to them that they're going to go to the hospital and actually catch an infection from a catheter. Then they find out that they have are resistant to certain antibiotics and certain antibiotics that they might need later in life for other critical problems. I don't know that a lot of people know this 
um, outside of the hospital or even within healthcare, but it's estimated that in the United States, 13,000 people in the U.S. die every year from catheter-associated urinary tract infection. So that's a huge impact on our society and on patients, and it's hard to think about going into a hospital for help and coming out sometimes with more problems or more severe problems than what you went in with or even not making it out. For the hospital itself or any healthcare-related facility, these infections are really expensive to treat. I read an estimate of about 900 per patient, and I think that's really an underestimation of what it costs to treat a UTI. It's really a hot topic in hospitals right now because we publicly report hospital-acquired infections and uh, CAUTI-related, and uh, Medicaid, Medicare does not pay for those. It's considered preventable, and so we're absorbing the cost. We don't reimburse for that, get reimbursed for that anymore. Also, these hospitals, the government keeps track of how many hospital-acquired infections happen under our care, and it gets publicly reported, so you can find on the Internet. In the state of Minnesota, we had a law that mandated us to do this long before, uh, several years before CMS started doing it, and I can tell you from my own experience, hospital administrators really care about their reputation, and uh, it's difficult to know that publicly patients can find out, the consumer, anybody can find out about what is considered mistakes in the hospital. So its impact, even now, impact health, the healthcare system more and more every year. So. When a hospital-acquired CAUTI occurs, what does the follow-up process look like, um, let's say, for the patient and that healthcare mm-hmm. system? Well, so first of all, the diagnosis of a CAUTI is really tricky. The CDC is no longer, well, I don't know if they ever recommend it, but they certainly now don't recommend routine surveillance, urinary tract infections. I know at some point in my career, we were uh, culturing doing uh, urinary analysis on everybody because we didn't want to say, we, we wanted to prove that they weren't developing these infections under our care. And that's just really not good stewardship. So we have more specific techniques for diagnosing urinary tract infection. But once that one is confirmed, of course they have to get on the appropriate antibiotics And now with all the resistant organisms, it's not uncommon at all that, well, even yesterday I talked to an infectious disease specialist that was actually consulting on a patient who was septic from a UTI, and they just didn't know what, they didn't, they were running out of options for antibiotics to uh, treat the patient. So the patient could be at this point be on antibiotics or they could be on antibiotics that don't work and seeing specialists to determine how else they're going to treat the urinary tract infection. So that's the experience for the patient. Of course, longer length of stay, right? Nobody's expecting to go into a hospital and to have to stay longer because of a urinary catheter. And all of the problems that increased length of stay can be on the patient, just think economically not getting back to work, and so forth. For the facility, then, they need to determine, now that they know that the patient has a UTI or a catheter-related urinary tract infection, 
they have to determine whether or not it developed under their care and there's uh, specific criteria that they use to determine that. And once they determine that, they need to have a root cause analysis, which is uh, many members of the healthcare team that get together and look at ways that they could have, where they went wrong, ways that they could have prevented it, and what they would do differently the next time so it wouldn't happen to another patient. And then once they have that root cause analysis, they put together a report, they get on, um, at least in our state, they get on a uh, registry with the hospital association for that state or the Department of Health or both and input that report with an action plan for what they intend to do to correct the problem or to prevent recurrence in the future. And so not only do they have this uh, root cause analysis, which is as you can imagine, very resource intensive to get all of these healthcare team members together, but they need to come up with an action plan that is satisfactory to the state. And so now they've given themselves, hopefully, some homework. And sometimes it can be major homework, depending on uh, what they found or what opportunities they have for improvement. Then once they implement whatever action plan they had determined to do on their report, they have also committed to measuring that effectiveness. And there's a number of ways where they can do that depending on what it is. They might decide they need a more structured protocol, for example, to look at what is the criteria for placing catheters. And so they might have to audit that and make sure that that's being done. Or they might say, you know, we want to implement some reminder orders so that every day, because best practice is to be looking at criteria for catheter insertion every day that the patient has a catheter in, because the longer they have a catheter in, the more likely they are to develop a urinary tract infection. So maybe hospitals, and there's, this has been reported in the literature too, will implement maybe electronic reminders um, or orders for the nurses to sign off that this criteria checklist has been looked at. So those are a few examples. And then if they find that in their auditing that their action plan didn't work, then they need to go back to the drawing board and develop another action plan and remeasure. So when I say that uh, urinary tract infection costs more than $900 per patient, you're starting to get an idea of the expense and the labor and the resources involved. How do you see the use of um, indwelling catheters continuing to evolve in the future? I think that structured protocols are going to be really critical. And an example, the American Nurses Association potty prevention tool is a really good example of a structured protocol where it's not necessarily all new information, but it's packaged in a way where it's really easy to use. And it really emphasizes nurse-driven work. And of course, I'm biased, but I think nurses are awesome. And I think that when they know that something works, they can really get behind it. So I think that that will happen. If it doesn't happen, that then I think that needs to happen. I think the other thing that needs to happen, and I hope will happen, is that we refine the criteria for catheter use 
For example, one of the criteria for using an indwelling catheter is meticulous INO monitoring. Well, that can mean different things to different people. And for someone who thinks a condom catheter doesn't work or that they um, don't know how to use one or they don't have a proper product within their facility or it's not properly sized or whatever, to them, an external catheter is not an option for meticulous INO. But for someone like me, who knows that there are products that work if they're used properly, might look at that criteria a little bit differently. Another criteria they have for indwelling urinary catheters is for sacral wound healing. Well, to someone who doesn't know about all of the wound care products that we have on the market, the ones that are waterproof that would keep urine completely out of the wound, for someone who doesn't know about those products, perhaps they would see a need for a Foley in order to heal that wound, uh, but they're I don't see it that way at all. And I see that in my practice too, where I'll ask, you know, why the patient has a Foley and they'll look at me because I'm a wound care nurse too. And they'll say like, like, duh, the patient has a wound. But yet I've got them on a waterproof hydrocolloid that's, you know, or it's a stage two or a, a shallow three and it is just not an issue. So who's making the determination for that? Um, that can be pretty uh, broadly interpreted. Monitoring that criteria, I think, will become bigger and bigger to make sure that that criteria is being looked at and whether or not experts agree with how that's defined and operationalized. The thing, again, that I hope will happen, that I think really needs to happen, is that the consumer, the patient, is going to start asking, why do I need that? I don't like the idea of scaring patients, but I think it's really important that they're informed. And I would have to say most patients probably don't know that they could die from an infection related to a urinary catheter. They probably see the urinary catheter as maybe life-saving and important or convenient. And if they knew that you only want to have a catheter if it's absolutely mandatory, they might be wanting to know why. And I think that the patients asking those questions can be really, really powerful and can uh, motivate us to know how to answer those questions and to offer them alternatives to urinary catheter infections. The other thing is, I hope there would be some more research and at some point some criteria, established criteria for the use of antimicrobial catheters. I'd love to know once and for all, is there a place for them? I think there probably is. And I'm no expert by any stretch of the imagination, but my experience with topical antimicrobials and uh, biofilm makes me think that there's definitely some merit into that science. So I'd like to see more science around it, more research around it, and some criteria. So in closing, what would be a key takeaway for our listeners regarding uh, the topic of catheter-associated urinary tract infections? So they're not benign. They can cause unintended consequences. We should always be asking, is there another way? Is this the only way? Is there another way? We need to know what are the alternatives to urinary catheters. We need to be asking ourselves every day, 
Maybe they needed this cat litter yesterday. Do they really need it today? Do we really need to keep this in until five minutes before they go to the nursing home? Reassess every day and that nurses and wound specialists who are dealing with moisture issues every day should be very interested in continence care and Foley care. Denise, thank you again for all of this great information on Cotty. We appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Bowel and Bladder Matters podcast, part of Coloplast Professional, where we believe clinician education related to ostomies and continence matters. For more educational resources from Coloplast, visit us at coloplast.us professional.